So we're going to talk about hell today, and we're going to focus pretty much on the Old Testament. Okay, when we get into the New Testament, we'll need to kind of build on some of the things that we've talked about here. But I'm going to use a New Testament verse here as kind of a, a springboard for discussing hell. Jesus brought this up many times. He just uh, referenced the word hell and uh, the Gospels, and you see how many times Jesus brought it up here. Just one example. Jesus said, if you call your brother a worthless fool, you will be in danger of going to the fire of hell. Now, our very first lesson here a few weeks ago, we talked about you know some guidelines for interpretation. And uh, one of them was... Um, you know, a willingness to be surprised when we read the Bible, a willingness to, um, um, you know, move the boundaries of perhaps our, our preconceived understanding. And so when we read something like this, it's easy just to immediately transport everything we think about hell. And that's exactly what Jesus meant when he used the word hell. Okay, well, uh, we're going to try to understand what did hell mean in this time? What, did, what was Jesus referring to? Okay, so the, uh, the Greek here and the English translation is Gehenna. And this refers to the Valley of Hinnom. We can see how these are kind of similar here. So Jesus was really saying here, you're in danger of going to the Valley of Hinnom. So the question is, what does that mean? This was a valley in the south of uh, Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is probably the best place to try to understand what is this referring to. So there are two places here in Jeremiah where this Hinnom Valley is referred to. First is in Jeremiah 7. People of Judah have done an evil thing. They placed their idols, which I hate, in my temple and have defiled it in Hinnom Valley. There it is. They have built an alt altar called Topheth so that they can sacrifice their sons and daughters in the fire. And what we'll see, if you just do every reference to Hinnom Valley here in the Old Testament, this is the common denominator here. It's always worship of other gods, and specifically involved in child sacrifice. I did not command them to do this. It did not even enter my mind. And so the time will come when it will no longer be called Topheth or Hinnom Valley, but Slaughter Valley. And they will bury people there because there will be nowhere else to bury them. The corpses will be food for the birds and wild animals, and there will be no one to scare them off. And when we get to Revelation Later, Revelation is essentially made up of the Old Testament. So we're going to understand the book of Revelation. We, we better understand the Old Testament references. And some of you will be familiar here with the imagery in Revelation 19, and the corpses and the birds um, eating the corpses and so on. Okay, but that's for later. Another uh, reference here in Jeremiah is in chapter 19. Very similar. I am going to do this because the people have abandoned me, have defiled this place by offering sacrifices here to other gods, gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah have known anything about. They have filled this place with the blood of innocent people. They have built altars for Baal in order to burn their children in the fire for sacrifices. There it is again. I never commanded them to do this. It never even entered my mind. Okay, this is God talking, kind of an interesting expression, never entered my mind. So then the time will come when this place will no longer be called Topheth or Hinnom Valley. Instead, it will be known as Slaughter Valley. In this place, I will frustrate all the plans of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. I will let their enemies triumph over them and kill them in battle. I will give their corpses to the birds and the wild animals as food. And, you know, we read the story of Jeremiah and what happened, how the city was surrounded for almost two years and the horrible siege and the slaughter that occurred in this time. 
Okay, so let's back up here. Let's read a little bit more um, historically. The first reference to Hinnom Valley is back in the book of Joshua. So the people are settling the land, and we just kind of have this reference here to Hinnom Valley, which was on the south side of the hill where the Jebusite city of Jerusalem was located. Of course, eventually David took that over and became uh, Jerusalem for the Israelites. So that's just the territory. Okay, but if we read on um, here now, Solomon, remember eventually he sacrificed his children to the god Moloch. This was the god where you put the babies in the hot the hands, the heated hands of the idol. Okay, this is the method of child sacrifice. And that was probably in Hinnom Valley. And here in 2 Chronicles and in 2 Kings, Ahaz became king at the age of 20. He ruled in Jerusalem for 16 years. He did what was not pleasing to the Lord and followed the example of the kings of Israel. He had metal images of Baal made, burnt incense in Hinnom Valley, and even sacrificed his own sons as burnt offerings to idols. Same thing. Okay, this child sacrifice. And I think it's just so important here when we consider, you know, there's worship of God and then there's worship of the pagan gods. And this is a, such a, a common thread we see in paganism. It's uh, just appeasement. You know, the gods need lots and lots of blood. Highest honor for the gods in those days was to ch sacrifice your child, your firstborn. Okay, so this was a, a very common practice and we should associate that with Hinnom Valley. Okay, and a few chapters later on in 2 Kings, we read about good King Josiah. And he desecrated Topheth, the pagan place of worship in Hinnom Valley. So he broke the altars, he grinded everything down so that no one could sacrifice his son or daughter as a burnt offering to the god Moloch. So in other words, when Jesus refers to hell, okay, this is a place that has a history. It would trigger specific you know, historical things, memories of things that are associated with Hinnom Valley. We get another reference here in Isaiah, where it refers to Topheth, and I just inserted here, it's thought that the meaning of the word Topheth is literally a place to be spit on. The place of burning has long been ready for the Assyrian king. The fire pit is piled high with wood. The breath of the Lord, like fire from a volcano, will set it ablaze. So we're backing up in time now. Remember that Isaiah wrote uh, in the period of time leading up to the Assyrian captivity. So the Assyrians are now the enemy that threaten Jerusalem, not the Babylonians. And so uh, this, this passage here about the Assyrian king, we just have to keep reading in, on, on Isaiah to get the story. Okay, the Assyrians did surround Jerusalem. Okay, but this time Hezekiah prayed. And what happened here is that the Lord's angel went out and killed 185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian camp. And when the Judeans got up early in the morning, they saw all the corpses lying there. And so this was in Hinnom Valley, again, a place of great slaughter. Now, just, just a little bit of a tangent, but it, but it does apply to our subject here of hell. Um, the last verse of the book of Isaiah is, is probably a, a key text for many, to support an eternally burning place of torture. It's a troubling verse. I mean, the great book of Isaiah ends with this verse. As they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will never die, and the fire that burns them will never be put out. The sight of them will be disgusting to all people. And 
I really like the uh, explanation. In fact, if, if you want to read a good book on the subject of hell, it's called Two Views of Hell. And it's uh, Edward Fudge and uh, Dr. Peterson, blanking on his first name, but they kind of go back on a traditional and another understanding of hell. But um, here was uh, the, uh, I thought, some helpful words on this subject. That this is the most misunderstood, misused, and misapplied passage of the Bible on the subject of hell. We must read the context. Again, how important. Understanding. We can pluck that one verse out, build a whole theology around it, or can we put it in the context of what it meant in that time? Okay, here's the context. This symbolic picture of the future reflects an actual incident that Isaiah described in chapter 37. We just read that. The Assyrians are surrounding the city. Okay, and there they are. They got up in the morning, and they're all dead. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies on the other side of the wall. And in chapter 66, Isaiah anticipates the same scene on a massive scale at the end of time. In this prophetic picture, as in the historical event of Isaiah's day, the righteous view the dead bodies of the wicked. They see corpses, not living people. They view destruction, not conscious misery. Discarded corpses are fit only for worms, maggots, and fire, which are both insatiable agents of disintegration and decomposition. So the maggots, they're, they're eating something that is already dead. It's not an ongoing, eternal suffering kind of picture here that was in the historical event. So to the Hebrew mind, both worms and fire signify disgrace and shame. Worms and fire also indicate complete destruction. For the maggot in this picture does not die, but continues to feed so long as there's anything to eat. This passage of scripture says nothing about conscious suffering and certainly nothing about suffering forever. So again, I think if we try to put maybe this story in the context, uh, we can maybe see another way of, of interpreting this. Okay, but uh, back here to Hinnom Valley. Now this is a tradition, but the tradition is that this Hinnom Valley was the garbage dump in Jesus' day. This is where the trash was bought, brought. And uh, that there was a continual fire there to burn the garbage that would come in. Okay, so Jesus uh, perhaps could be seen as saying, you know, you'll be in danger of going to the, to the garbage dump, that Hinnom Valley place. And if this is true, as in this book, Two Views of Hell, his hearers would have known Gehenna as an important place where maggots and fire raced to consume the garbage, refuse, and offal dumped there each day. This is the, uh, you know, when a butcher slaughters the animal. It's the leftover parts, you know, the intestines and things like that that are dumped out and are consumed by the fire and the maggots there in, uh, in Hinnom Valley. Okay, and just reading on a little bit more on the history of Hinnom Valley, this is from Josephus, and he said that this valley, Hinnom Valley, was heaped with the dead bodies of the Jews following the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So it's kind of a similar thing, you know, this time it's the Romans that surround Jerusalem. And there's again a great slaughter, the dead bodies piled up, also in Hinnom Valley. So this place, I mean, it, it really was hell. You just look through the history, child sacrifice and all the great slaughters. Um, yeah, I think uh, hell is maybe an appropriate um, term for that. But again, be, be careful what meaning that we project on that for the future. Now, let me say a couple of other things, and then we'll get to a different kind of fire. And we're kind of focusing in on the, the Old Testament, and then uh, later we'll talk more about the New Testament on hell. So the word sheol here, this is used 65 times in the Old Testament, and what's, what gets a little bit confusing with this word, uh, the Hebrew word, 
is that in the King James here, it's variously translated as hell, the pit, or the grave. Okay, and this, uh, the uh, translation here is hell, again, can lead us to project our image of hell onto that particular passage. The American Standard Version just uses the word Sheol, which is, I think, great. It kind of challenges us, well, what is Sheol? And uh, the NIV typically translates this as just the grave. Okay, so what is Sheol? Uh, literally, it is gravedom, or the realm of the dead. Okay, not in the Old Testament, certainly not in the Old Testament, a place of ongoing eternal suffering. And just to maybe support that, in Greek this is Hades, but we have people, righteous people, that talk about going to Sheol. And so hell wouldn't, wouldn't seem to fit quite as well here. Jacob would talk about, I will mourn my son until I die, and the word there is Sheol, until I go to the grave. Okay, not hell. David would say, but God will redeem my life from the grave. And Job would talk about, if only you would hide me in the grave. So, you know, if we would translate those verses as hell, okay, that would, that would be rather uh, problematic. So this is Sheol here. This is referring to the grave. We kind of want to keep that separate from our subject of hell. Okay, one other uh, brief little subject here before we talk a little more about fire, and that is the subject of the soul. Okay, and this comes up very early in the Bible, where God formed man of the dust, this is the King James translation, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And this is often understood as there is an essence, uh, something else besides the brain, the blood, and, and so on. That when a person dies, there's this other entity that then floats off and, and goes somewhere. And um, I, think if, I think that the scholarship on this, at least to my understanding, is, is pretty much in agreement that this is not what this verse is referring to. And if you look in almost all of your modern translations here, uh, here's the NRSV, that God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Okay, man began to live. It is not, uh, not describing something, uh, something else. That, that really comes from uh, Greek, you know, the immortality of the soul, Plato and all of this. Um, very much talked about this, but we, we really can't get this, at least certainly from uh, this passage here in Genesis. So I just quoted one um, Old Testament scholar here that the ancient Hebrews had no idea of an immortal soul living a full and vital life beyond death. Human beings, like the beasts of the field, are made of dust of the earth. And at, dust, at death, they return to the dust. The Hebrew word nephesh, used here in Genesis, traditionally translated living soul, but more properly understood as living creature, is the same word used for all breathing creatures and refers, refers to nothing immortal. So again, the, the subject of the immortality of the soul it's an important one just because it affects our understanding here of this, this suffering and what is described in hell. If the soul is immortal, then now we've got something that lasts forever and ever and ever. Our next book, Ezekiel. God refers to Ezekiel 92 times as mortal man. Okay, and if we're allowed to use the New Testament, uh, we read in Timothy that, that only God is immortal. 
Okay, so again, the, the immortality of the soul, it's just important in terms of how we understand uh, the afterlife. And I was surprised to find this quote. This is Billy Graham. Okay, and he would certainly support a, a literal, eternal hell. But I appreciated his uh, humble words here about his own understanding of hell. And he would say, the only thing I could say for sure is that hell means separation from God. We are separated from his light, from his fellowship. That is going to be hell. When it comes to a literal fire, I don't preach it because I'm not sure about it. When the scripture uses fire concerning hell, that is possibly an illustration of how terrible it's going to be. Not fire, but something worse, a thirst for God that cannot be quenched. And he went on to give some other possible explanations. Okay, so uh, I mean, I appreciate a man like this who said, you know, I don't fully understand this, but I'm not quite willing to describe it this way. And he was just willing to go as far as to say it, it's separation from God, it's awful. Now, kind of to support uh, Billy Graham, I said we're going to stick with the uh, Old Testament. But, um, you know, Jesus' words many times that would kind of be a, a reference to hell, there's always weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, here they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Okay, but other parables don't describe it in the context of fire, but in the context of darkness. In this one, the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness, this time not the fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, you know, these are, these are kind of uh, word pictures here, trying to paint a picture. And the gnashing of teeth, can you think of a story in the Bible where there was gnashing of teeth? And they were stoning Stephen, and the people were so angry at Stephen, they just couldn't stand it and they were gnashing their teeth, and then finally they picked up stones and killed him. So it's, it's associated with just intense anger, disgust. Okay, so we talked about uh, one type of fire. Okay, we have people sacrificing their children in the fire in Hinnom Valley. Okay, but there's another fire that is associated with God in the Bible. And this is why this is such a, a complicated subject. Now, how do we try to put these two together? And uh, this story um, here in uh, Numbers, I don't know how many of you have read this, but um, it's about Nadab and Abihu. And I think it, it presents perhaps a little bit of this. We're trying to understand these two types of fire. So, of course, these were very evil sons of Aaron. They disobeyed the Lord by burning before, before him the wrong kind of fire. And notice what happened. So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up. And they died there before the Lord. And then Moses called for Aaron's cousins. He said to them, come forward and carry away the bodies of your relatives from in front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. Now, without reading the next verse, um, just what would you anticipate if you're um, here Aaron's cousins and you're just told that fire from the Lord's presence burned them up? Uh, what do you expect to find when you go in? What about their clothes? about their bodies? What's going to be left of them? I hear somebody saying ashes. Well, here's the description. So they came forward and picked them up by their garments. Their clothes were okay. And carried them out of the camp, carried the bodies out of the camp, just as Moses had commanded. And then they burned them outside the camp. Okay, so we have this fire. And notice here, from the Lord's presence, and then the bodies are still there, the garments are still there, and then they're carried outside the camp and burned. And what I'm just going to try to suggest here is that fire in the Bible, especially as it relates to God, 
Um, you know, we have many times where this is not describing a literal fire like you would light with a match. This seems to be something else from God's presence. Okay, and we have a verse we like to quote here in Hebrews. God is a consuming fire, but this comes from the Old Testament in Daniel. Because the Lord your God is like a flaming fire, like a consuming fire. Does that mean he is literally a fire? Okay, what is this describing? We have so many examples of this. Isn't it like uh, we're dependent on a, a couple key texts here or there? We have Moses. Remember, God came as a fire to the burning bush. And um, I, our, I love our kids' video on this, where Moses has this conversation with God, and then after God leaves, Moses goes over and he picks a little leaf off the bush. Okay, it's not singed. Okay, so it was a holy place. Moses had to take his shoes off. But the fire in this case, it was not certainly not destructive to the plant. It was described as a fire. Okay, then the people go out to Mount Sinai. And we read this a few weeks ago, that the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the glory of the Lord appeared to the Israelites like devouring fire on the top of the mountain. So question, was there a forest fire? Uh, was there you know, a massive outbreak of fire here as it, God came down on top of the mountain? Again, we certainly don't have a description of that. This would seem to be describing something different, this glory of God's presence here that came down on the mountain. Okay, we have a description of God and Moses talking. Remember, God said, no one can see my face and live. And yet we just read on, and Moses talked face to face with God as a man would speak with a friend. And so Moses went into the tent of the Lord's presence to speak to the Lord, and he would take the veil off. You'd think that's when you'd want it on, but he'd take the veil off. And when he came out, he would tell the people of Israel everything that he had been commanded to say, and they would see that his face was shining. Okay, again, uh, third-degree sunburn, or was this describing something else? His face was shining. And then he would put the veil back on until the next time he went to speak with the Lord. And if we read other places here, that he put the veil on because the people felt so uncomfortable. You know, seeing the radiated glory of God in the face of Moses, you know, they asked him, put that veil on. You know, we don't feel very comfortable. And so he wore the veil when he would talk with the people, then would take it off when he would go back in to, uh, to talk with God. Okay, again, we have fire described here in the sacrificial system. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of the Lord's presence. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the dazzling light of the Lord's presence appeared to all the people, and suddenly the Lord sent a fire, and it consumed the burnt offering and the fat parts on the altar. And when the people saw it, they all shouted and bowed down with their faces to the ground. Now, what was this tabernacle made up of? Sheets and, and things like that. Okay, And this happened many times, and never do we get a description of anything uh, that was actually burned up uh, by this fire that would come down. Again, kind of suggesting that... Uh, Yes, it, it's fire, looked like fire, but perhaps not exactly as what we know as fire. King Solomon, of course, finished his prayer. Fire came down from heaven, burned up the sacrifices that had been offered, and the dazzling light of the Lord's presence filled the temple. Same thing. Because the temple was full of the dazzling light, the priests could not enter it. And when the people of Israel saw the fire fall from heaven and the light fill the temple, they fell face downward on the pavement, worshiping God and praising him for his goodness and his eternal love. Okay, so similar to, to what happened in the, the tabernacle. 
Okay, so, so we have um, fire here, and what is very interesting, I think, is that so many times, just in the Old Testament, we have a description of two very different reactions to the, the fire, the glory of God's presence. We already described Moses face-to-face, talking with God. The people just looking at Moses' face, very, very uncomfortable. Okay, and so uh, I'll give some examples of that. Here in Psalm 68, as wax melts in front of the fire, so do the wicked perish in his presence. But notice a, a different re- uh, reaction here. But the righteous are glad and rejoice in his presence. They are happy and shout for joy. So we have Nadab and Abihu. Remember, it was fire from the presence of the Lord. And then we have Moses. Okay, so as wax melts in front of the fire, the wicked perish in his presence, but the righteous have entirely different response. Now, um, Isaiah, we, we talked about this at the end of the Bible study last year, but he came into the immediate presence of God, just like Moses. And I, and I think his experience here is, is perhaps helpful. So he saw the sound of their voices that made the temple shake. The temple itself became filled with smoke. And notice, he felt guilt. He felt uh, uncomfortable at this time. He said, there is no hope for me. I am doomed because every word that passes my lips is sinful. And I live among a people whose every word is sinful. And yet with my own eyes, I have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Okay, so in the the presence of God, he's, he's seeing God for who he is. Okay, but at the same time, there's a natural thing that happens at that moment. We see ourselves better as we are. Okay, and so he's, he's feeling uncomfortable. And then one of the creatures flew down to me carrying a burning coal that he'd taken from the altar with a pair of tongs, and he touched my lips. And of course, uh, this, is, it's, uh, this is describing something. This was not an actual coal that burned his lips, a fiery coal as we would know it. Okay, but he uh, touched my lips with a burning coal and said, this has touched your lips, and now your guilt is gone, and your sins are forgiven. And then I heard the Lord say, whom shall I send? Who will be our messenger? And now Isaiah is encouraged and he's ready um, to give his message. Okay, but again, it's, it's a little window into this uh, fire. I think the, the most incredible passage of all, though, is here in Isaiah 33, which d- describes people coming into the presence of God. But the Lord says, now I will do something and be greatly praised. Again, what is destructive? Here, is it God externally doing something, or is it, is it an intrinsic reaction? And here it's described, your deeds are straw that will be set on fire by your very own breath. You will be burned to ashes like thorns in a fire. Everyone, both far and near, come look at what I have done. See my mighty power. Okay, we keep reading. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. And notice what they're asking. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Okay, that's, that's referring to God. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? And again, some people can. He who walks righteously and speaks what is right. So again, a description of two people. Some people, uh, no way. We can't dwell with the consuming fire and want to get as far away as possible. And then you have other people who... Um, again, uh, rejoice, like we read in, in Psalms, are, are happy in God's presence. Okay, and finally, a last uh, Old Testament verse on this is in Malachi. 
where the Lord Almighty says, the day is coming when all proud and evil people will, will burn like straw. On that day, they will burn up and there'll be nothing left of them. That's not describing a, an eternal process. But for you who obey me, my saving power will rise on you like the sun and bring healing. Again, this part of it is destructive. But the same, same stimulus, if we want to call it that, but for the other people, for those who obey me, my saving power will rise on you like the sun. That's the same fire and bring healing like the sun's rays. You will be as free and happy as calves let out of a stall. Okay, and uh, I thought about holding this one off because Ezekiel is our next book, but I just uh, have to bring this up here, that if, if we allow for Ezekiel 38 or 28 to be referring um, to Satan, which I think we can make a good case for, um, something else significant about fire. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. So this is before his rebellion. And notice, he is living in the fire of God's presence, the stones of fire. This is not harmful. Okay, but then we read about the demise of Satan right here in this same poem. You defiled your sanctuary, sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. And so notice, so I brought fire from within you. And it's just like uh, Isaiah. Your deeds will be set on fire. It comes from within rather than uh, being externally imposed. I brought fire from within you and it consumed you. I let it burn you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. And so, uh, again, if, if we allow for this, which we'll talk about more here in a couple of weeks, to be referring to Satan, to the fall of Satan, that even the final destruction of the greatest enemy of enemies is I brought fire from within you. That's a fire from within that consumed. So uh, the subject of fire here, I guess the question, and maybe we can make a summary point here. In the Old Testament, who kindles the fire of hell? And I think we could make a case here. This is a quote from Origen of Alexandria who said, Scripture indicates that every sinner kindles for himself the flame of his own fire and is not plunged into a fire which has been previously kindled by someone else or which existed before him. And that makes a very big difference um, into just our whole uh, picture of things. It, it's similar to what we were talking about last time. Um, some have described that, um, you know, if God doesn't need to do something to us for sin, then that could kind of sound like, well, it's kind of soft on sin. Okay, well, you could maybe understand it that way, but... Again, let's, let's use our medical model that we talked about last time. You have a patient who's smoking and drinking, doing all kinds of horrible things to himself. Um, what makes that sound more serious? The fact that intrinsically there's nothing bad about drinking liters of vodka per day. Intrinsically there's nothing bad about smoking three packs of cigarettes per day. Uh, does it make it sound more serious if the only thing bad about doing that is that doctors will punish? That's the real problem with smoking. That's the problem with alcohol. Can you see how it's, it's a very different picture? Um, certainly would be a different picture of physicians in that, uh, in that model. If intrinsically those behaviors are not harmful, it's just that it needs a punishment by doctors. And here we see if sin, uh, and, and sin is more than just the, the individual acts of sin, it's rebelliousness, it's not trusting God. If that is intrinsically harmful, I think it highlights the malignity of sin rather than making God sound soft on sin. It, it 
highlights how devastating that is, rather than making uh, God sound out to be a softy. That's certainly not what I'm trying to say. All right, so if I can just conclude uh, here with some words, this is not to prove this, but uh, some words of the person who I think wrote the words on these banners here. An eternally burning hell preached from the pulpit and kept before the people does injustice to the benevolent character of God. It presents him as the various tyrant in the universe. This widespread dogma has turned thousands to universalism, infidelity, and atheism. And uh, reading on here, that this, and that by this, it's the act of the destruction of the wicked, that this is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. And that is so key. Do we see it as just an arbitrary, okay, now we're at the end of time and God is just going to finish everyone off. It's an arbitrary act. Or could we see it as a, an intrinsic uh, kind of a response? It's not an arbitrary act of power on the part of God. Okay, notice the description here. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life. And when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. They receive the results of their own choice. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The fire is the presence of God. So I think I would like to say, yes, the fire is eternal, lasts forever. But what is the fire? Ultimately, the fire is God himself. The glory of him who is love, God is love, will destroy them. And then finally, the light of the glory of God, which imparts life to the righteous, will slay the wicked. Again, kind of, it's the same. God is, is not two-faced. Okay, just like God was with Peter and Judas. Treated them both the same. Okay, it was their decision, how they responded to Jesus, that determined their outcome. Very different for Peter, obviously, than Judas. Okay, so... Um, that's just a little brief picture on hell. We'll talk about it more when we get to the New Testament. I think in two weeks, our subject will be human suffering. Okay, And I think hell and human suffering are probably the two biggest things that have um, tended to chase people away from God. So uh, hopefully we can come to a better understanding here. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, we ask that for each person here, as we try to understand these uh, difficult subjects, um, we want to understand uh, the truth about these matters, or at least be moving in that direction. So uh, be with us, inspire our thoughts, that as we read the Bible, as we think about you, that our understanding of this comes closer and closer to the reality of who you are. And we know as we do that, that you will look more like Jesus. Amen.